Great. The reading is from Mark 10, verse 32, which is 959 in your church Bibles. I'll give you a couple of seconds. Everyone there? Mark 10, verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want for me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. Thanks, Max. Well, I think this passage is probably one of the most radical and possibly one of the most disturbing passages in the whole Bible. What the disciples ask and what Jesus said to them should rattle us, it should unsettle us throughout the whole of our lives. And I've only got one point for us this evening, um, but don't get too excited. It doesn't mean I'm going to be short. Um, it hopefully means that I'm going to be simple. Uh, and uh, that point is the relentlessness of the ego. The relentlessness of the ego. Because what G Jesus is doing here in this passage is tackling the problem of the ego. The ego in each one of us that tells us to look out for number one, that insists that we're at the center of our little worlds, that puffs us up and pushes others down. You see, we must never underestimate the, the appetite and the relentlessness of the ego. You know, when we become Christians, some battles against certain sins we may win quite quickly with God's grace. But the battle against the ego will not be one of them. This is a deep and long battle and it will rear its ugly head again and again in different forms, in different situations, probably throughout our lives. This problem is so pervasive and insidious that I think the question for most of us, and particularly for any of us who are in leadership, is not, do you have this problem? But where is this problem at the moment? You know, where is it currently surfacing and how am I tackling it? 
And here in this story, this problem surfaces at the most ghastly, the most terrible moment. And it reveals the human heart for what it is, self-seeking and power-hungry. And here is Jesus speaking to his closest, dearest friends. It's one of the most poignant, probably the most desperate conversations as he describes his brutal death that's just ahead of him. You know, he's taken them to one side, verse 32. It's a sort of intimate moment just between them and him. And he tells them straight, we're going up to Jerusalem where I'm going to be betrayed, condemned, mocked, spat upon, flogged, and killed in the most horrific way. Now, he's just told them that. Well, you'd have thought, you know, you'd have thought at the very least their response would be, no, no, this can't happen, this is awful, we, you know, we love you, we followed you, you know, you can't leave us like this. But no, there doesn't seem to be much sign of grief or panic or even sympathy among them. And instead, two key leaders of the group are more concerned with what they're going to get rather than what Jesus is going to suffer. Verse 35, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. It's quite disturbing. He's their champion and their friend, and he's just told them he's going to die. But strangely, darkly, their thoughts are elsewhere. Jesus says, I'm going to be killed. And James and John say, look, we want cabinet seats in the kingdom. If you're going to move into number 10, we want to move into number 11. Where have you heard that before? It's ironic because James and John call Jesus teacher, but they've missed the point, the heart, the sort of core of his teaching. They want glory and recognition. They've anticipated that one day there's going to be a sort of unholy scramble for seats in Jesus' kingdom. And they want to jump the queue. You know, they've rather cleverly thought ahead, like German tourists, you know, putting out their beach towels early on the loungers, you know, bagging their place by the pool before anyone's even got, had breakfast. James and John have made advanced reservations. And just to get an insight into their heads and hearts, just to help us realize this isn't a, mo- a momentary blip. No, this is a recurring theme, an inherent problem in the human heart. Just flick back to the previous chapter, chapter 9, verse 30. And you'll see there that Jesus again had pulled his disciples aside. And this time, again, it was for a study day, a study day on his death. Verses 30 to 32. And then look again what happens straight after it. It's very striking. They've entered Capernaum, verse 33. And Jesus asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet. And it's a a bit hard for us to get the gist of of this translation, exactly what's happening here. But basically, the verb used implies Jesus kept asking and they kept quiet. He kept asking and they kept quiet. Because on the way, they'd been arguing about who was the greatest. There's a saying that if you want to find out what's in the heart of a particular man or woman... Just ask them about their daydreams. So could I ask you, what do you daydream about? What do you dream of? Well, whatever it is, you'll find that those things unlock your heart because your heart will always run after those things you secretly dream of. 
Most of us are very driven people. Here are five common drivers, um, taken from James Lawrence's Growing Leaders book. I don't know if you've come across that. Five drivers that can control our lives. First one, the drive to be perfect. So we value success and achievement. Secondly, the drive to please others. So we value peace at any price. Uh, the third one, drive for efficiency. So we value activity and energy. Number four, the drive to be strong. So we value independence and courage. And the last one, the drive to try harder. So we value effort and determination and, and persistence. Now I wonder which of those five drivers you identify with most. None of them are wrong in themselves. They only become dangerous when they begin to dictate the pace and direction of our lives. You see, we're all motivated by different things. We all have our secret dreams. And the disciples, bless them, simply, you know, are simply verbalizing their daydreams. They let it sort of all spill out. There's a sort of awful honesty there. There's nothing subtle about their request. Jesus, we want acclaim and fame. You see, they're status seekers. They're hungry for recognition. And when they think of what greatness will bring them, you know, they get this sort of wonderful, warm feeling rising up inside them. You know, all that adulation and honor and just people looking to them and appreciating them. And this room is probably full of James and Johns. And Jesus asks each one of us, as he asked the disciples back in chapter 10, what do you want me to do for you? What do you really want? What's in your heart? And the question to all of us is, what do we say to that deep down? You know, maybe we're not as open and honest as James and John. Maybe we don't articulate so everyone can hear. Maybe we are a little more subtle. But what are our secret dreams? What's in our heart? What do we want out of life? Do we want deep downs? Do we want status and recognition and significance and respect and to be known and to be looked to and admired? Well, James and John wanted all that and more. Verse 37, we want, they said, to be seated at your right and left in your glory, they tell him. In other words, we want the most honored positions in the kingdom of God. And the intention behind the request is quite specific. It's not just that they want to be honored. It's that they want to be honored above everyone else. It's the pecking order that they're, that they're concerned about. That's what really matters to them. Sound familiar? You know, we recognize that kind of attitude, don't we? When people are not content with good, they're only content with better, better than the rest. We've all seen it, and many of us, if we're honest, have done it. You know, wanting to be the fastest, or the cleverest, or the sharpest, or the wittiest. Uh, Paul and I were on holiday last year. We, um, we love walking, and we'd um, gone to, on a walking holiday to the Alps. And it was a beautiful day, and we'd been climbing up this steep sort of track, single track. And Paul noticed uh, that, as usual, apparently, I was up front, leading the way. Uh, so he thought he'd test me out, and without saying anything, he overtook me. 
only to find that a few minutes later, I found an excuse to get back in front again. Um, and this went on for a little while, neither of us sort of making anything of it, not, not drawing attention to it, but one sort of overtaking the other until we were both almost running up this track, trying to get ahead of each other. And as I sped past him, he called out, darling, it's not a competition. And apparently I called back over my shoulder, life is a competition. <laughs> To which he literally just sat down in the track and just roared with laughter because he said, that's how you attack everything. You know, you were one of five children, always competing, always wanting to prove yourself, always wanting to be the best. And he was right. You know, and it's a bit of a joke, but sometimes, you know, it's not so funny. And I've really had to watch that tendency in me. Uh, you know, just the other day, I was giving a talk at a women's event, and at the end of the meeting, um, a lovely young girl, she must have been about 18, came up to me, and she said that she didn't usually go to church, but she'd been really touched by my message, and in fact, she said, and these were her very words, it was the best talk she'd ever heard. Yep, you could hardly, probably hardly believe it listening to me now, but that's what she said, this was the best talk she'd ever heard. She, of course, didn't realize that, you know, this was just feeding into all my secret ambitions, you know, to be the best. And, of course, I was, I was you know, suitably modest and said, no, 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 it was nothing, it was nothing. But inside, I was going, yes. <laughs> Until the Holy Spirit whispered in my ear, Christine, she's barely 18. By her own admission, she's hardly ever been to church. How many talks do you think she's actually heard? The best of what exactly? And that just, you know, you can imagine, that just brought me down to size. The relentless ego in us will constantly need bringing down to size. And this isn't meaning to encourage a sort of false humility. No, but in the heart of a believer, there should be a distinct difference between striving to do our best and wanting to be the best. You see, the way of the cross is utterly incompatible with self-seeking. Just look at verse 45. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Even the Son of Man, even Jesus, chose humanity. He chose obedience. He chose the cross. And that presents us with a dramatic choice. Self-seeking or self-sacrifice. There's no option to have a bit of both. We have to choose. Every day we have to choose. And our relentless egos will always try to pull us one way. And Jesus, the Son of Man, will show us another. Which way will we go? You see, our egos are insatiable. James and John weren't satisfied with prestige and honor, with, with greatness. That wasn't enough to feed their egos. No, they wanted power as well. They asked for the right to sit on either side of Jesus. Now, what do you think they were going to sit on? The floor? Uh, cushions, maybe? No. It's very clear that they, what they had in mind, it was thrones. Thrones. So they would have the power and authority to sit in judgment alongside Jesus over others. It's an outrageous request. You know, Jesus, your throne in heaven. You know, do you think you can make it a three-seater? But Jesus shows extraordinary patience with them. You don't know what you're asking, he says, verse 38. They haven't understood the route they'd have to take to get there. They've no idea what they're asking. 
And do you see the response from the other 10 disciples? Verse 41, it's hilarious. They were indignant with James and John. Why? Because they hadn't thought of it first. <laughs> you know, oh no, those jolly brothers, they've got ahead of us yet again, got the best seats. Exasperated. What we've got to remember is that James and John came from a very well-to-do, a middle-class family. In Matthew's account uh, of this incident, their mother pushes them forward to ask this question. Yes, the original pushy mother. James and John came from an ambitious family, you know, household, householder servants and a, and a thriving fishing business. James and John presumably missed out on that inheritance in following Jesus. And maybe they thought they would be compensated for, you know, for what they'd given up. Maybe they thought their request was totally justified after all they'd sacrificed for him. Here yet again, do you see the relentless ego emerges, convincing them that somehow Jesus owes them something for their devotion. Um, even Peter, just back in verse 28, reminded Jesus as if, as if he needed to, you know, we've left everything to follow you. You know, one of my main ministries in, uh, our, in St. Mark's has been to young couples in our congregation. Uh, I've run the marriage preparation course for over 20 years with my husband, Paul. And uh, we're forever sort of meeting up to counsel um, young people in relationships. But a number of years ago, uh, one of our daughters was very badly hurt in a relationship with a young man in our church, one of our leaders. Uh, it was a very serious relationship, but he suddenly and inexplicably... Uh, backed off and he very quickly started going out with another girl in the church and you know it was one of the most difficult things I think I've ever faced in church life dealing with the my agony for my daughter my fury with this young man and having to pretend it was okay to the rest of the congregation but you know the hardest thing to deal with was was not that it was my anger with God that he should have allowed this to happen. How could he, after all the ways we'd poured ourselves out for other young couples? How could he do this to our daughter? How could he allow her to be hurt right in the middle of our congregation, our family, our church? And I watched as my daughter lost weight, lost confidence, and finally had to go to another church just to find relief. But for me, you know, it was that moment of reckoning when I heard myself talking to God as if he owed me something, as if he'd let me down, as if he'd done something wrong. And I had to get down on my knees and let go of my anger and my ego and admit that I had no rights. I wasn't owed anything. Jesus is number one, not me, not any, of, any one of us. And we all need, you know, to, be, to learn to be ruthlessly honest and uncompromising when we start acting as if life circles round me, as if I'm at the epicenter and God is at my beck and call. And of course, we'd all like to say, you know, I don't, I don't do that, I don't act like that. But let's be honest. When things don't go right for us, when we're disappointed, when we don't get that job, when we miss that opportunity, yes, when a relationship goes wrong, do we bow to God's sovereignty or do we find ourselves questioning his wisdom, his care, his authority? What do our prayer lives look like at that time? Do we find ourselves praying a variation of Jesus, I want you to do for me whatever I ask? 
You know, many people's prayer lives are like that. And James and John here are simply thinking about number one. Jesus has said he's going to die. They say, do whatever we ask of you. You see, the power mindset tramples on other people to achieve its ends. It does what it likes, when it likes, to whom it likes. It seizes the opportunity to take control. And of course, this is a hard one for us as Christians because we recognize, you know, in our companies, in our workplaces, in society, in our churches, we need authority, we need leadership. But the power mindset tramples over others. And its only concern is for itself. And behind it, there's always a sort of arrogance, a pride, a conceit. And Jesus calls the disciples together, verse 42, and tells them, only the Gentiles, only the unbelievers act like that, lording it over each other, throwing their weight around. And then he says those extraordinary words, just four words, that should be underlined twice in all our Bibles. Not so with you. Not so with you with you. We're not to go on power trips. The relentless ego must be reined in. We're called to serve. That's the pattern of Jesus. And of course, it's totally countercultural, and that's why it's so hard for us all. You see, the worldly leadership is like a pyramid. And at the top of the pyramid are the leaders and rulers, and everyone else is beneath them. But Jesus turns it on its head. He says, you who would be leaders must be servants. You must be under them, bearing their weight. Uh, Last year, we invited Archbishop Ben Kwashi from the province of Jos, one of the most vulnerable northern states in Nigeria, often in the news because of the atrocities committed by Boko Haram. We invited him and his wife Gloria to come and, uh, and speak at our leaders' weekend. And it was the most extraordinary weekend as they shared their vision for their country, their love for God's church, their passion for Jesus, and uh, some of their story. And uh, one part of their story was when Gloria told us how on one occasion, uh, when Ben was away, Boko Haram forces had invaded their compound uh, where they lived with nearly 70 adopted children. And she'd hidden the children, and that had incensed uh, the terrorist who stripped her and dragged her through the streets of her town naked, and then beat her so badly that she was blinded in one eye, uh, miraculously healed a year later. I mean, extraordinary stories. But you know, one of the most memorable moments uh, over that weekend was when we asked if we could pray for them. And we were all in a large circle, and they simply moved into the middle of the group and fell on their hands and knees. They prostrated themselves in front of us, their heads to the ground. And it was a sign of such humility as they received prayer, but also of such instinctive reverence and awe as they came into the presence of their almighty God. And I can't tell you, it was an awesome thing, if quite uncomfortable thing, to watch, to be part of, as we were allowed to minister to these two saints, these two giants of faith, who knew far more of God's love and power and and certainly of his servant heart than we ever would. So it's self-seeking or self-sacrifice. It's power or service. But I can hear probably some of you saying, well, you know, it's all very well, Christine, but come on, 
you know, you're just a sweet little vicar's wife. You don't really know what it's like out there. You know, you have no idea. You don't know my work situation. You don't know my colleagues. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there. This is so naive. I'd be mad to follow this teaching. I'd just be trampled right over. Talk about trampling. Well, there are a lot of responses to that. For example, self-sacrifice and service are the keys to a happy marriage. Uh, the 17th century poet Samuel Butler wrote about two incredibly selfish people, Mr. and Mrs. Carlyle, and he said, how good of God to let Mr. and Mrs. Carlyle marry each other and so make two people mis miserable instead of four. Uh, if, there, if there isn't self-sacrifice and service in a marriage, it won't last long. It won't be a happy place. Alternatively, if you read the immensely influential management book, Good to Great, by Jim, Jim Collins, you'd find he identifies two things, extreme personal humility and intense professional will as the two ingredients of level five uh, leadership, top leadership. And as he investigates in his book the 11 men who led the most enduring financially successful companies in the US, he found, yes, that personal humility and professional will were their common trait. Their companies and their employees went first. And he pointed out you'd almost certainly know the names of their companies, but you probably wouldn't know their names. And that's the way they wanted it. Verse 43, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. John Stott said, it's a wonderfully liberating experience when the desire to please God overtakes the desire to please ourselves. And when love for others displaces love for self. True freedom, he says, is not freedom from responsibility to God and others in order to live for myself, but freedom from myself in order to live for God and others. Classic start. So how can we test whether we're living for God and for others rather than for self? How do we keep the relentless ego on a leash? Well, let me just throw out some uh, test questions for you to take away with you. First one, do you find that you easily celebrate the successes of others without feeling envious? Can you easily celebrate the successes of others without feeling envious, without turning it back to yourself, thinking, what about me? Are you generous with your compliments? Do you find it easy to praise others? Or are you rather stingy, thinking that to give something takes away from you? Is there, now this is a hard one, is there anyone in your life who you would find joy in their failure? Anyone in your life who you'd find joy in their failure? Do you find yourself constantly comparing your life or your looks or your career or your opportunities with others? In other words, is there a rather unhealthy competitive streak in you? In a crowd of people, a little bit like just now maybe at the piece, in a crowd of people, are you looking out for yourself or are you looking out for others? And for those who lead in the workplace, how might you be tempted to lord it over those who work for you? For example, are there benefits that you currently enjoy at their expense? Or do you know what it feels like to work for you? Do you know what it feels like to work for you? Would you dare to ask? 
And I think one of the big challenges for those of you who are young leaders is to major on the right question. You know, it's very tempting to be obsessed with the question, how can I sort of rise to greatness, or however carefully we phrase that. And that plays out, you know, in a restless concern to always be in the right place at the right time, you know, to get the right things in that CV, to say the right things that will make, get you noticed, make you popular, position yourself for promotion. But the question Jesus calls us to, to major on, is very different. Not how can I rise to greatness, but how can I best serve in this place, at this time, with these people? The relentlessness of the ego. You know, for most of us, it will be a lifelong battle. Self-seeking or self-sacrifice, power or service, which will we choose? And you know, this passage should bring us up short. It should disturb us, just as it must have disturbed the disciples. And yet again, Jesus turns their and our little worlds upside down. He blows apart our small-minded, self-absorbed thinking. And he shows up the relentless ego for what it is, petty and pathetic. And it's no mistake that this passage begins and ends with the cross. It's all about Jesus, the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the disciples, of course, at this point didn't understand. They didn't understand the necessity of the cross. But we must. And you know, when we do, it unlocks something in our hearts so that we're able to willingly and persistently pursue self-sacrifice and service. Jesus. Jesus, the servant of many. Shall we stand?